Hello and welcome back. You are listening to the History of Religions and Their Gods. And this is your host, the Skeptical Ghost Heathen. And I am the ancient history enthusiast as well as the hobbyist of ancient religions and their cults. So we are now rolling into episode 12. We're getting there, um, which is simply entitled One God, One Nation. And so basically in this episode, we're going to take a look at the acquisition of that first temple and the quest for monotheism. Um, so I thank you everybody for sharing, um, commenting, uh, writing me the emails and the messages. And um, also, if you were a listener of episode 11, I made a little faux pas that I doubt I bet half of you caught it. But I was talking about Zoroanthrianism. And I made a mention that uh, Freddy Krueger, none other than Freddy Krueger, was a practitioner. Well, I seriously doubt that Freddy Krueger was a practitioner of Zoroanthrianism, but Freddy Mercury was. So anyway, without further ado, let's uh, climb into our time machines, put on our seatbelts, and let's go! So now we're starting to roll right into that time period of 700 to 100 BCE and the origins of the Israelites. So we already know that, you know, what makes up of the Israelites, you know, these Jewish people that we were talking about, you know, they were Canaanites for the most part, um, sharing same DNA, sharing same theologies, worshiping many gods and godettes, if you would. Um, and then having some later, some political disputes, and then an eventual takeover of the, uh, of the temple. So I would like to talk about those first five books of the Jewish Bible that makes up what the Jews would refer to as the Torah, where biblical scholars call it the Pentateuch. So the Torah starts with the book of Genesis and ends with the book of Deuteronomy. Now, many apologists will claim that, well, Moses wrote all five of those books, and but and that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll go along with that, even though that we know that they were multiple editors, multiple um, authors, specifically with um, Deuteronomy and, well, actually all of these books, um, even in Genesis. We know that there were at least two authors. You can see that right from the takeoff. But these five books were compiled and mostly composed in between that 400 to 150 BCE. We know this all mostly that that post-Babylonian exile um, time period of that 539. But we know that things didn't really get taken off until um, closer to that 500 year period. You know, what the, you know, building of the temple and things of that nature. But some parts of it were of an oral tradition. You know, I, I, I take I take ownership with that. We know that the Mishnah was something that was practiced and memorized for a few centuries before being written down in Hebrew and Aramaic. But they all were sharing in common theologies with neighboring cultures. In fact, the Jewish people were extremely exposed to other cultures' theologies and may have worked them into their own, you know, after a few thousand years of exposure. We've talked about this over for like the last three episodes. But changing character and narratives were common practice in antiquity, as we have discovered. And keep in mind, we have archaeological evidence from these other cultures and these civilizations for their works on that, you know, the, on stone that date back some 3,000 to 4,000 BCE. 
And we have nothing really from the Jews or, you know, anything with exception to the Dead Sea Scrolls that literally date around 150 BCE to perhaps at the, at the latest 70 CE of the Common Era. So then you have to start questioning, you know, what happened to the originals? Were they not important enough to preserve or were they altered too many times and simply just lost in history? Even the scrolls we found were lost in several different caves, not a temple, and only to be found you know, sometime into the 1940s of the Common Era. However, that reason is probably due to the Roman destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE and the need to potentially hide those scrolls. Now, I do want to discuss those scrolls in great detail a little bit later on, um, but there is clear evidence that they were indeed discovered in hidden caves to hide from the invading Romans in the year 70 CE with the, uh, with the Jewish and Roman wars. But these could have belonged to a sectarian group of Jews that were living alongside the West Bank in Jerusalem. And in the year 70, the Jewish war was completely oblivious to anything about Jesus or his deeds or his trial or disciples or his resurrection. The scrolls say nothing about this Jewish Messiah that supposedly died around 30 CE. I think that's odd. Uh, but we do, but we do know. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there is a ton of um, maybe about sixty mentions of a militaristic Jewish Messiah that would be coming to destroy their enemies, and we'll talk about that in great deal too. But we're talking about um, any kind of evidence at all within these scrolls that we found, several cylinders that would give us any kind of inc inclination. It's especially about the sectarian group that was writing in the 50s, 60s, and the 70s, and had nothing, absolutely nothing to say about this Jewish Messiah that came in peace to, uh, you know, only to be suffering from a crucifixion, disciples, a mother, a family, brothers, nothing of that. So it really just has to give you a second to kind of think about it. So, other than the Dead Sea Scrolls, the only remaining works that we have that are of the Old Testament and come in their complete works, they date to the 13th century of the Common Era. We've got nothing earlier than that. Nothing that's going back into 4000 BCE, 3000, 2000, 1500, 500 BCE. We've got nothing until the Dead Sea Scrolls that are, they're, they're carbon dated back to at the latest, 150 BCE. And that makes sense because we're going to talk about that in the involvement of um, Antiochus and even working into the Jewish wars. So that's not the only thing that's odd about this. The other thing is, is by the 16th century of the Common Era, 14 of those books would later be removed from the complete Old Testament because he didn't totally agree with what the Roman Catholics' teachings were on Christology and were later deemed as heretical. So here you have this sectarian group of Jews living in Jerusalem, at least until 70 of the Common Era, during, the, during that 66 to 73, more than likely, um, during those Jewish wars, the ultimate destruction of the temple, where they ultimately hid these scrolls, that were living in the time that this... Um, presented pacifist messiah would have met his doom with uh, the Roman government and, you know, his crucifixion and, you know, by, by Pilate and his disciples. And none of that is found here. But then 14 of these books that have other references and that are part of the sectarian group, 
Roman Catholic Church removes it entirely from the books. It's weird. So we're going to step back just a little bit, just to remember that early Jewish worshiping in the Iron Age coincided with that of the Canaanite religion, as discussed in the last three episodes probably. But they were heavily polytheistic with a four-tier level of gods that included a supreme creator god, city gods, state gods, and then a miscellaneous local god tier. Even Yahweh was one of those local miscellaneous gods. Remember, he was the the, 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 the local city-state guy that was in charge of the weather. We know this. We have evidence of it. But the Jews and the Canaanites also shared these beliefs among other political, polyistic, and pagan religions in the territory with many surrounding neighbors that all had different worldviews on philosophy, deities, and the cosmos, and life after death, etc., And there were also several different variations of Judaism, several different sects, just as you would have several different political groups popping up at the same time, even today, each one having different ideas on how a person should behave and what they should aspire to in life and how they should treat others. We see this right now, right? Very similar in Christianity today with over some 3,000 different sects of Christianity, all these different variations of how Jesus should be worshipped and things that he said and things that he'd done, books that have been removed, books that um, you know the Catholic Church uh, took out, some churches believe in. This will go on for centuries. But it was just the same thing in Judaism. So I paint this picture because I think it's important. If you're just thinking about this group of Jewish men and women that were absolutely separating themselves from that of the politics of the Canaanites, well, then you're wrong. You're 100% wrong. There were multiple groups in the camp that had different ideas on theology. Not every single one of them wanted to be polytheistic. There were definite advantages to polytheism than having just one God. And there were several great advantages to having just one God. So you have all these different types of groups that would pop up in in, in these ideas that they had. But aside of that, I would also like to point out during this time, especially when, you know, within paganism of these other cultures, especially as we start getting into that 400 to 300 BCE um, you know, we can even go back. I mean, paganism was huge, you know, especially with, uh, with, with you know, within uh, the Roman Greco Empire. Um, paganism had equal power to priestesses. So what does that mean? The female priests within the pagan religions had equal power to their counter male part priests. They were referred to as priestesses. They even owned land. And this will be an important topic to understand. I bring it up because there is some more misogyny that would be found within the Hebrew Bible. Um, we see this in Genesis 3.15, Leviticus 27.3-7, Deuteronomy 25.11. Um, anyway, it just goes on. Titus 2.5, 1 Peter 3.1, 1 Timothy. But a lot of this stuff is written, obviously, in defiance of... Um, you know, and I, I think it kind of uh, works around that whole theme of Ashura, you know, when she lost her status of being a goddess and got turned into an idol. So you had these kind of ideas that were going on too. And this wasn't something that was popular in all of the camps in Judaism. This is just in the one that succeeded, the one that actually became and took control of that temple. But basically what all those verses were telling us was that 
kind of the same thing that we saw in Hammurabi is there was a value or I'm sorry, there was a lesser value placed on women in specifically priestesses, if you would. <laughs> Matter of fact, they shouldn't even exist. But um, most of these verses that we talk about were telling women that they needed to be quiet. They needed to be subservient. They needed to listen to their husbands. Um, anyway, it just it goes on and on and on and on like that. But um, but the Jewish writers were obviously very familiar with the laws and codes of Hammurabi and the Babylonian gods. You know, remember we talked about Marduk, that a woman's life has held less value than a man's some 1,400 years earlier, not to mention, you know, the abandonment of Asherah. But, you know, what was it? 1900 BCE is when um, these laws of Hammurabi went down. Anyway, enough with that. But evidence from archaeological excavations suggests that Jews absolutely believed in more than one God, and other than just Yahweh from the time of the pre-Israelite religions all the way through the times of Antiochus in 160 BCE. We'll talk about him. Oh, you're going to hate him. Or you might love him, depending on your position. But evidence found in the Canaanite city of Ugarit points out that the ancient Israelites practiced polytheism with the creator God El. And Yahweh was associated with Yel and became, as we talked about, the national god of the Hebrews. But there's something a little bit more cooler about this, I think, because there is a lot of evidence that the creator god El from the Canaanites had a son named Y.W. is the way that it's written on the, um, on the tablets. So it's widely considered that that is a breakdown or a shortened variation of Y.H., W.H., which we also see on the tablets, which is widely accepted as Yahweh. So if you think about that, now it's not just Yahweh God being the city-state, um, state worker guy, you know, in charge of the weather, in charge of the wind and the rain and all that kind of good stuff. So now we actually have this Yahweh God as a son to the Canaanite God El. So very interesting how they move these characters around. And then if you recall, at one point, you know, Asherah is Yahweh's mother as the queen of heaven. And then she is also at some point Yahweh's wife. Now it just gets a little bit weird, right? But as we know it, eventually these two names would just simply emerge and become one. El and Yahweh basically became the Judaic God in the Old Testament probably in defiance of the unification from Antiochus as we get further on down the road, and the kingdoms of Israel, Samaria, and Judea. In the oldest Canaanite literature, Yahweh is a storm and warrior deity who leads a heavenly army against Israel's army, or Israel's enemies. So, you know, <laughs> that's interesting. But at this time, the Israelites worshipped Yahweh alongside a variety of other Canaanite gods and goddesses, including the aforementioned El, his wife Asherah, and Baal, as were all reviewed previously in the Canaanite um, episodes. But as the two gods were conflated into one Yahwistic religion, a political system, if you would, this political party eventually separated themselves from the politics and the theology of the Canaanites and became the main god of Israel and was eventually and ultimately promoted in the temple of Jerusalem as the god of the entire cosmos, possessing all of the attributes of all of these other gods and all of these other goddesses. Now, this is huge. This is important. This is now the Yahweh God taking on all the attributes 
all the roles of his brother, his father, his mother, all of these things. He's, he's, he's wearing a lot of God hats right now, if you would. Just like what we will see in Jesus Christ, a culmination of mythological dying and rising deities from all over, all over these different territories. But there's also a lot to be considered about how this all went down, which is what I really want to get into. How did this thriving, wealthy, artisan culture of Canaan succumb to the Jews and or this political party and allow Yahweh to become the only, the only God of the pantheon to control over the temple? How did this even happen? Obviously, was there a mass takeover? Were the Jews eventually big enough to take that kind of control? Over the Canaanites, did they take control of the uh, did take control of the shipping operations too? And how was the control played out? That's what I really want to get down to. How did this happen? Was it the genocide that was portrayed in the Hebrew Bible? No. Did the Jews take weapons to take control? And the rest is just history. We may never find out, but we can only imagine, as we know, that they were jealous of their Canaanite wealth and their power and that whole, you know, shipping thing that they had going on and, you know, the popularity and, um, and they felt that they should have control over this temple. This was a political movement of power and legitimization of the Jewish people of Israel. One needs to constantly remember when, when listening to this study, when listening to these episodes, when I refer to the Jews, that's only a word that I'm using as a reference to this group of politically and theologically driven desert Arabs that shared the same exact DNA as the mixed group of races that unified in the city of Canaan, as well as throughout the entire Levant, which spread from Egypt all the way to Assyria. So the reason for Assyria scholars, such as myself, Coming up with very different ideas about Israelite history and the religion is rooted deep in the scarcity of information, the elusive nature of their religion and their politics, the ambiguity and now the ambivalence of the relevant data. Short of major discoveries of contemporaneous religions and historical texts of the kind we have for pre-Hellenistic Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Ugarit, the situation is not likely to change. This results in the field of ancient Israelite history and religion being extremely open to academic fadism. So in fact, and I may, might even add in, unfortunately, we have almost no certain knowledge of anything in Israelite history uh, that, that dates back to the times of, you know, we're getting this King David, we're getting stories about King Solomon, we're getting stories about, you know, Joshua's, you know, General Joshua and you know, all this stuff dating back some, you know, 900 years BCE. But unfortunately, we know that that's all hyperbole. We know it's backdating and retrofitting and embellishments. But, you know, at the earliest and almost, there's almost no reliable biblical evidence regarding what religious beliefs and behaviors were before that are reflected in the Torah. Since the Torah was only finalized in the early Persian period, which is at 300 to 1st centuries BCE, the evidence of the Torah is mostly relevant to early Second Temple Judaism. The Torah is most relevant to early Second Temple Judaism. 
that Judaism reflected in the Torah would seem to be generally similar to that later practiced by the Sadducees and the Samaritans. That's it. And I think, and most scholars think, that's really problematic. Of course, the most important of the documents for source material are those contained in the Hebrew Bible. That's really what we got. Though it can be argued that we can have a reasonable idea of the political history from Israel from, say, the 10th century to 586 BCE. And we have from the Ugaritic literature a fair idea of Canaanite religion of the Middle and Late Bronze Ages. It isn't clear how much we know of Israelite religion before the Babylonian exile. However, odd remarks preserved in the stories, not the framework of books of Judges and Samuel, probably provided some information, but scholars are unanimous that even those books were written centuries later while trying to write about their Jewish lore of the past. However, the overt information provided in the Torah and Deuteronomic history is archaic and biased, as well as one-sided, kind of the same thing. Well, well, one-sided political propaganda, and it's even written several centuries after the fact. It can never be taken 100% seriously, the Bible that is. But it does give us an idea, or at least a window into the time, to see what this group of Jews were thinking, and what their political and cultural environments were like. In Deuteronomistic history, from Joshua to Kings, there was clear evidence, actually, of Israel's polytheistic roots. But readers would view this material as evidence of backsliding Jews from the original monotheism, because they followed the intimations provided by the final editors of these books. So, backsliding Jews from the original monotheism? We know that they weren't originally monotheistic. We know that they were polytheistic. We already know this. They were backsliding. Because I voted for one political party than the other, does that mean that I'm a backsliding Republican or a backsliding Democrat? No, I don't, I don't think so. It, it doesn't work that way. The editors of these books were trying to promulgate monotheism in their own exilic age by projecting their religious values and idealized fashion back into the past. Some scholars went beyond the idealized portrait of the Deuteronomistic and priestly editors and even envisioned a religion more ideal and ethical than those biblical editors suggested. Now, I think a real good example of this is a write-up by a Yazenkiel Kaufman. And I'm going to work in a quote in here. Um, and so this is basically what he says. So the Deuteronomistic historians viewed their past through a Yahwistic lens and saw their history, not only as it was, but very much as it should have been. The guidelines by which they measured their past included strict allegiance to Yahweh, a rejection of all other deities, rejection of native cultic activities such as the golden calves, Asherism, and the bronze serpent, centralized worship in the temple, and a great deal of egalitarianism and social justice in society. Their criteria, their criteria for evaluating the past are laid out in Great Manifesto, the book of Deuteronomy. They evaluated the past as though their spiritual ancestors, the prophetic minority, were the true leaders meant to define the religious life of Israelites from the time of Moses onward, when in reality they were but a progressive minority within a current society. 
Therefore, beguiled by the rhetoric of the redactors of the biblical text. Readers sometimes miss the truly dramatic story of the Deuteronomistic history. The great struggle of the progressive thinkers and the Yahweh Alone movement who gave birth to a new value system over the years and helped an entire people evolve toward monotheism. It didn't happen overnight. The fact is, there was not a single takeover or a series of battles. Rather, over centuries would the Yahwistic religious cult take hold of the temple. The first one prior to its destruction in 587 BCE. Now, I'm not calling the Deuteronomistic historians liars. They did not deceive more than historians of any age. All historians seek to craft a narrative of the past by selecting those aspects which, which consciously or perhaps unconsciously consider most valuable in order to communicate a meaningful message to present so as to shape the direction of their future. The Deuteronomistic historians were theologians. They were preachers. They were priests, rabbis, who wished to achieve significant religious goals with the interpretation of history. They were, above all, preachers, and the Deuteronomistic history is primarily, it's a sermon, if you would. But taking the task on of reconstructing the cult of Yahweh, it includes biblical claims and sets them within a wider framework to consider that accounts for the available information that we have. The data in the attested sources indicate a pluralism a pluralism, excuse me, of religious practice in ancient Israel that led sometimes to conflict about the nature of correct Yahwistic practice. It is precisely this conflict that produced the differentiation of the Israelite religion from its Canaanite heritage during the second half of the monarchy. But understanding this, we know that these priests wrote 2nd to 1st century BCE with what they knew of the past through stories told through oral tradition through other historians, through other works. This is why you see so many stories about events told in 150 BCE, but with references back to 539 BCE. This includes the works of Daniel, Isaiah, Kings, Exodus, Judges, so on and so forth. They are all remembered legends and myths told from centuries before and then worked into the current day situation. time, some followers of polytheistic gods and religions became so fond of their particular patron that they started to drift away from the basic polytheistic insight. They began to believe that their god was the only god, and that he was in fact the supreme power of the universe. Yet at the same time, they continued to view him as possessing interest and and even biases, and even believed that at some points they could even strike a deal with him usually through prayer. Thus were born monotheistic religions whose followers beseeched the supreme power of the universe to help recover from illness or win the lottery or gain victory in war, if you would. So the Jews weren't the first ones to, um, you know, grab the market of monotheism. You know, they weren't the first ones to do it, or at least to capitalize on it. Actually, the first um, monotheistic religion appeared to us out of Egypt in 1350 BCE 
with the pharaoh Akhenaten, who declared one of his minor deities in the Egyptian pantheon. Actually, it was the uh, god Aten, um, who was in fact the supreme power ruling over the entire universe. Akhenaten institutionalized the worship of Aten as the state religion, tried to check the worship of all other gods, as will the Yahwistic cult thousands of years later, as will you know, we've been discussing. But his religious revolution, however, was unsuccessful. It wasn't accepted. And after his death, the worship of Aten was eventually abandoned in favor of the old pantheon and polytheism. So polytheism continued to give birth here and there and even to other monotheistic religions, if you would. But they remained quite marginal, not least because they failed to digest their own universal message. You know, I mean, Judaism, for example, argued that the supreme power of the universe has interest in biases. Yet the chief interest is this tiny Jewish nation and in an obscure land of Israel. Judaism had very little to offer to other nations, and throughout the most of its existence had not even been a missionary religion. They never proselytized. We talked about this. This can be referred to as the stage of local monotheism right? Not this massive monotheism. Most of the world at this time was polytheistic. So I think, you know, we've got to talk about the, the, the big breakthrough for Judaism came with Christianity several centuries later in Rome. It's odd. It's, it's really odd, actually. And, and I can't wait to break it down with you. But this faith will begin as an esoteric Jewish sect that will seek out to convince Jews that the Jesus of Nazareth is their long-awaited Messiah their militant messiah. However, one of the six first leaders who we will refer to as St. Paul reasoned that if a supreme power of the universe has interest in biases, and if he had bothered to incarnate himself in the flesh and die on the cross for the salvation of humankind, then this is something that everyone should hear about, not just the Jews. But it was thus necessary to spread the good word, the gospel about Jesus throughout the world. And lucky for Paul, his argument fell onto fertile ground. Christians began organizing widespread missionary activities aimed at all humans. In one of history's strangest twists, this esoteric Jewish sect took over the mighty Roman Empire. I can't wait to talk about this. With the support of Constantine and his later successors. This Judeo-Christian cult went from being a private group of practicing Jews in Judea to a monster cult with the headquarters established in Rome, the Roman Empire, with funding. Funding of the world's largest government at this time. This is how Christians were so successful and prolific in their mass production of literature, and much of it in support of the Caesars. It, it, the, the Gospels were so pro-Roman and anti-Jewish. Now, that's a, that's a paradoxical conundrum, right? As you will see, it was the Jews, that small political party with different ideas and theology, that killed the Son of God. Not the Romans, not Titus, not Pilate. The four canonized Gospels go out of the way to make this point. The author, as a matter of fact, um, we're going to talk about Joseph Atwell a little bit later. He has a very interesting perspective that we're going to talk on. That, um, well, that we, we definitely need to take a look at. But it's total conspiracy. 
But we all have to understand, we all have to know that Christian success served as a model for another monotheistic religion that appeared in the Arabian Peninsula in the 7th century. Islam! Just like Christianity, Islam too began as a small sect in a remote corner of the world. But in even stranger and swifter historical surprise, it managed to break out of the deserts of Arabia and conquer the immense empire stretching from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to India. Henceforth, the monotheistic idea played a central role in world history. And monotheists have always tended to be far more fanatical and way more missionary than any other polytheistic religion. A religion that recognizes the legitimacy of other faiths implies either that its God is not the supreme power of the universe, or that it received from God just part of the universal truth. It doesn't know it all. Since, monotheistic, um, since monotheists have usually believed that they are in possession of the entire message of the one and only God, they have been compelled to discredit and condemn all other religions and their gods. Over the last 2,000 years, monotheists repeatedly tried to strengthen their hand by violently exterminating all the competition, if you would. And for whatever reason, it worked. At the beginning of the first century CE, there were hardly any monotheistic, you know, monotheists in the world. But around 500 CE, one of the world's largest empires, the Roman Empire, was a Christian nation. And missionaries were busy spreading Christianity to other parts of Europe, Asia, Africa. And by the end of the first millennium of the Common Era, most people in Europe, West Asia, North Africa, were monotheists. And empires from the Atlantic Ocean to the Himalayas claimed to be ordained by a single great creator god. By the end of the early 16th century of the Common Era, monotheism dominated most of Afro-Asia, with the exception to some parts of East Asia and southern parts of Africa. And it began extending towards South Africa, America, Oceania. Today, most people outside of East Asia adhere to one monotheist monotheistic religion or another. And the global political order is built on monotheistic foundations. Yet, just like animism, you remember the worship of animals, trees, rocks, etc. You know, we talked about that in the first couple episodes. But, you know, it would continue to survive with monotheism. They, they ran parallel with each other. In theory, once a person believes that the supreme power of the universe has interests and biases, what's the point in worshiping partial powers of a lesser god? Who would want to approach a lowly bureaucrat when the president's office door is wide open to you to go talk to? This is what happened. This is the change of events. Indeed, monotheists' um, theology tend to deny the existence of all other gods except for the supreme creator god. And to its, you know, and, 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 and pour hellfire and brimstone over anyone who dares to worship them, those other gods. Yet there has always been a chasm between the theological theories and historical realities. Most people have found it difficult to digest the monotheistic idea fully. They have continued to divide the world into us's and into them, us and them, and to see the supreme power of the universe as too distant and alien for their mundane needs. I think that's important. This is the other side.
Why would a supreme God want to take care of my mundane needs? And there's so many of us. That's why the that's why the polytheistic approach worked better. That's why they're so torn. It wasn't backsliding. But the monotheistic religions expelled the gods through the front door with a lot of fanfare. You know, all these gods are out. We talked about that. Marduk, out. Baal, out. El, out. Asherah, she's a tree now. Let's cut her down. Bam. Only to take them back in through the side window, if you would. Christianity, for example, developed its own pantheon of saints, even though they say they don't, whose cults differed little from those of the polytheistic gods. Just as the god Jupiter defended the Roman Empire, every Christian kingdom had its own patron saint who helped it overcome difficulties and even to win wars. The Christian saints such as St. George or St. Andrew, St. Martin, etc., they did not merely resemble the old polytheistic gods. Often they were these very same gods that were just perhaps in disguise. For example, the chief goddess of the Celtic Empire of Ireland prior to the coming of Christianity, her name was Bridget. When Ireland was Christianized, Bridget too was baptized by Christ. She simply became St. Bridget, who to this day is the most revered patron saint in the Catholic Ireland. Funny, huh? So Israel does not leap full-formed into history, like Athena from the head of Zeus, if you would. The study of origins is always a difficult one, but it has such a unique fascination to it. The possibility of such a study in concrete detail, it's still fairly recent to us. But what do we know? You know, and just coming into conclusion of this thing, two dynamic societies, Israel and Greece, rose from the ruins of ancient Near Eastern world. The first societies of the ancient Near East blossomed and grew old and more rebound in the course of the 3rd and 2nd millennia BCE. The cataclysms that began about 1200 BCE were symptoms of the end of essentially the static and hierarchical societies. Israel as a nation was born into an era of extraordinary chaos and such social turmoil. Think about it. Egypt's empire had collapsed, and the Hittite kingdoms had fallen, crumbled to pieces. The Middle Assyrian Empire was in decline after having years of rule, and invasions brought the, the, the destruction of the great Canaanite city-states of Syria and Palestine, most notably at the hands of the Greek sea people, which included Philistines. So I'm really interested in the emergence of certain characteristic features of Israelite religions. Number one, the shift from pure myth, the stories of gods, the central focus of Canaanite religion and cult, the centrality of epic memory and Israelite religion. And two, the shift from hierarchical um, hierarchy uh, notions of equality to Israelite conceptions of justice as, a, um, as redemptive. And three, the change from sacral or divine conceptions of state and church, kings and priests, to the desacralizing of state and critical provisional view of temple and priesthood.
So I think at this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up and call it a day. I think that uh, we got a lot done in this particular episode. Um, I think we learned a lot more than you know what we knew yesterday, that's for sure. And um, I know I'm spending a lot of time on this transition of um, you know the origins of Yahweh and the origins of the Jewish religion. And, um, and I think it's kind of cool. Um, I'm really fascinated by it, and I hope you are too. And, um, and I hope that you're appreciating the, um, the, the way that I'm approaching this subject. Um, I'm really trying to make it sound like it's just you, the listener, sitting in your car, and me here, but not here, not in your car, but sitting at a bar somewhere that's open, COVID's gone, we're each having a handful of beers, maybe me a couple of bourbons, and we're just shooting the shit talking about this stuff. So um, I'm very uh, relaxed in my conversation, and yeah, I'm going to laugh, and I'm going to, um, whatever, <laughs> I'm going to stutter, but I would too if we were just kicking back having some beers at a bar. All right, hey, you guys, my fellow heathens, I really appreciate you following along. I appreciate you sharing. I appreciate you commenting and having these conversations with me, and to my believer friends, same to you guys. You know that I love you, and um you know, these are just conversations that I enjoy having. And just the fact that you are listening, and I'm not trying to change anybody's mind. I'm just looking for answers too. Anyway, you guys have a great, great week. Get a lot of stuff done. And I will be talking to you next week. Ciao!